Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. My name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 43 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And today I have joining me Dr. Pete Stansky. We seem to be making a bit of a habit of this of late, Pete. And what's more, we're actually in the same room, which is a bit of a rarity. Welcome back. It's great to be back on the show, and uh, hello, listeners. And uh, it's nice to be in the same location in sunny Melbourne, Australia. And uh, yeah, I've been doing a bit of travel, Shane, so uh, a few bits of plane trains and uh, automobiles. Uh, so hello to all those listeners uh, in Korea, South Korea. I was there just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, just the other week I was also in sunny Auckland, New Zealand. Wonderful places. If you ever want to come and visit uh, this southern part of the hemisphere of the planet, uh, highly recommend those places. Great mm. food, great people, um, and lots of cool tech. Lots of cool tech. All right. So for those keeping a close eye on recent announcements, there's been a few to say the least. So today's show, hopefully we're going to have a little bit for everyone. There's something for the developers out there, the operations folk, and those new rock stars of the IT world, the data scientists. And machine learners. And machine learners. (laughs) Okay. So in the next five weeks, there will be six summits with a ton of planning, no doubt, going all around the globe at the moment. So that's pretty amazing. You know, five weeks, six summits. Pretty cool. And they're all in this part of the world too. They are, to a degree, Pete. Mm. So look, there are some great pics on social media on the usual AWS channels. Um, I particularly love seeing the Deep Racer League. But what's ahead, you may ask? So we are in Singapore on the 10th and 11th of April. Yep. Anaheim on the 11th of April. Amsterdam on the 17th of April, and Seoul, hello guys, on the 17th and 18th of April, and uh, very sunny Dubai uh, on the 17th as well. And the one I guess that we're both really looking forward to is the Sydney Summit in Australia, which is spread over three days from the 30th to the 2nd of May. Woohoo! It's very cool. Yeah, Pete, uh, you and I will be on AWS Summit Live in Sydney over three days, and on Twitch broadcasting everything Sydney Summit has to offer. And I think between us and the rest of the Tech Chat gang, we'll be streaming on Twitch for almost the entire three days, interviewing special guests, customers, providing commentary, um, and no doubt the obligatory dad jokes will be scattered <laughs> through the event. You know, I got I had some feedback from some folks actually while I was traveling who uh, tuned into the show, and uh, they do actually like many of the dad jokes, Shane. Well, better tell Contra my kids my, that uh, because uh, <laughs> my kids tell me to stop. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on out there, and obviously the summits are the places to be. And as you guys all know, the summits really aren't a marketing function. These are really places to go and learn about our services, and um, you know, get your hands uh, and your minds around the actual new announcements and what cool stuff you can actually do with them. Uh, but having said all that, um, lots of new announcements. And by the way, we have 165 services plus in our kit bag nowadays. And I was just talking to a, a few folks uh, last night at an event and I was reminiscing back to when I started Amazon almost seven years ago. So we've come a long way, Shane. So we're continuously growing and evolving and expanding. Uh, so uh, in the tradition of Tech Chat, what's new with our expansion footprint, Shane? Mm, okay. So... On the updates front, no new regions to announce today. So still 20 regions with Stockholm being the latest to launch. We have more coming this year, right? We so, do. Yes. Uh, we are a special mention here. We're in the advanced stages of our Hong Kong region launch. So, you know, that may not be too long now. 
Well, I'm sure Dean Samuels, our co-host, uh, is probably helping out behind the scenes. Hello, Dean. We miss you on the show, and uh, we'll have Dean back for you guys uh, to tickle your ears very, very soon. Come back soon, Dean. All right, so CloudFront um, still at 166 pops, uh, which, you know, is pretty amazing that we actually haven't had added uh, any in the last probably month now, but, you know, there's 65 cities across 29 countries. There's a pop, you know, no doubt, not too far from most places in the world. And look, you know, that's, that's not to say that things aren't expanding, right? Because think about it, we need to put in extra link capacities, um, upgrade a whole bunch of infrastructure. So stuff that you actually uh, already have out there uh, does actually require a fair bit of growth. And uh, we keep a finger on the pulse of expansion. So whenever we add more of those uh, uh, edge locations and pops and so forth, and regions, as you guys all know, um, these are all driven by huge, massive demand. And uh, we are incredibly growing fast. Uh, I would say faster than ever, Shane from what we're seeing, it's amazing. So thank you to all the customers. Thank you for using the cloud and uh, uh, I hope you guys are enjoying the uh, the cool, funky services. Okay, Pete, so- On to the new stuff? On to the new shiny stuff. So look, as a father, you're not meant to have a favorite child. And whilst they're all special, sometimes you do. So like, definitely don't tell my wife this. But at AWS- I hope she's listening. I don't know if she <laughs> is, but we'll find out, all right? Might get locked out at home. Um, so look, at AWS, I look at our services as our children. And for me, my favorite child, I mean service, is AWS Step Functions. Okay, yes, because you've been playing a lot with Step Functions. I love Step Functions. You did functions. your IoT demos with the elevator lift. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I've, I've done that. I've built security orchestration. Mm -hmm. So look, for those who aren't familiar with Step Functions, it's part of the AWS serverless platform, and it makes it really easy to orchestrate Lambda functions for serverless applications. So yep. in the last episode, Dean and I spoke about, you know, emerging and current trends. And one of those trends was is absolutely serverless and by virtue, AWS Lambda. Now, I would assume if you're using Lambda today in a meaningful way, I bet you don't have too many apps with, you know, just one function. In fact, it's common to have lots of functions all requiring communication with each other. And that's where step functions comes in, you know, because it's a reliable way to coordinate the components and step through the functions of your application. So it supports states like, you know, parallel, retry, fail, succeed, waiting. And because Step Functions is so flexible, it allows you to rejig your application without writing any code. And what's interesting is for those of you who may have done a bit of classical comp sci, uh, maybe in your degrees, uh, think of it um, as finite state machines. Right, it's, uh, it's the way that something, uh, the behavior of a state, of a, of a system and where it's actually at. And uh, this is a great mechanism as a service to actually be able to give you greater control and orchestration of, uh, and we have customers who've got hundreds, if not thousands of Lambda functions now. Um, and as you start to build more and more of these, you wanna make sure you coordinate those and parallelize tasks and jobs um, because uh, these are getting bigger, more complex. And we're seeing a trend where modern architectures are now evolving uh, outside of the classic, you know, running in a container or running uh, on an EC2 instance and running serverless uh, and having that coordination mechanism and visibility and also X-ray for that additional mm, traceability is also really important. Yeah, and look, I think I'm in the habit definitely these days of fronting every Lambda function I write with a state machine, even if it's just passing through. Because what that does, it graces me that freedom later down the track if I need to make changes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you go back, rewind, maybe five or 10 years ago, you know, it's like fronting a single server with a load balancer. Which makes so much sense now. now you probably wouldn't do it, do without it now, right? No, you wouldn't. Yeah. Because if you need to add more servers, you can then transparently do that, you know, transparently do that for your application. Mm -hmm. 
And the same logic really applies for step functions. Cool. So what's the, what's the major announcement? So this All is right. kind of cool, but what is the cool, really funky announcement? Because I'm, I'm super excited about this. Okay, so we're all up to speed now on step functions, and there's two bits of news here. One's really fresh, and the other is probably about a month old. So the Which first is still pretty fresh. It's still pretty fresh on the grand scheme of things here. So the first announcement here is just like Lambda Local, which enabled you to run your Lambda functions locally, there are now Step Functions Local, which is a downloadable version of Step Functions that lets you, you know, develop and test your applications using Step Functions running outside of the AWS cloud. So, so Shane, there could be a whole um, reasons why you would want to do this. Uh, this could be probably a part of your build environment, your pipeline. Um, you know, you want to be able to control the transitions and so forth. Um, so tell me a little bit more about uh, sandboxing this. Yeah, okay, so there's two ways to run step functions locally. Firstly, you can download a jar package, which you could run, you know, it's just a java-jar and the jar name. Because that's, that's kind of like what we did with DynamoDB, running a, it locally. Yeah, absolutely. And this okay. is good, you know, if your local environment has Java installed, you know, maybe you're running mm-hmm. on a Mac, etc. Is this but, what we mentioned, Coretto? Correct, yeah. Yes, so Coretto, Coretto. Is, our, is our open source SDK uh, for Java. So if you, if you don't want to uh, uh, use uh, some of the other uh, other versions of it, uh, we certainly have uh, released Coretta, which was actually announced around uh, late last year. And um, uh, James Gosling, who's also working for us, by the way, the father of Java, uh, around reInvent timeframe, which is very, very cool. I was really excited to hear that we're now actually supporting uh, the JDK and the SDK that goes with it. Mm. Well, Java and me probably have a bit of a rocky path. Oh, really? In the, in the back. Like, Mr. Microsoft.net guy? Well, you know, having to download <laughs> all those separate versions of a JRE and the a JDK. JDK. You know, Java was actually one of the first languages I did learn at university. So, well, that's why it's I, interesting. That's, but it's also got some really cool stuff in it. By the way, we, we, we are so segueing here, right? We are segueing but here. Yeah, so, look, the JDK is pretty cool. The JDK is pretty cool. Platforms. But if Java isn't your thing, you know, maybe you don't have a JRE or JDK installed on your system. Which is a reality. Which mm-hmm. is a reality. It can be downloaded as a Docker image. And now look, I wouldn't consider myself to be like a containers fanboy. I think they're great, they are awesome. But it's still up for this route. I'm gonna wrestle you, I'm wrestling you. I reckon they're cool. They are cool. Look, um, you bundle all of your dependencies, you and that's have the thing. self-contained, they're deployable. It's portable. anywhere. I don't know, Shane, I don't know. And I think the, the plus for me is I don't need to install Java on my laptop here. <laughs> well, it could be in a container. It could be in a container. Look, it's pretty easy with Docker. You know, you just grab this from Docker Hub, and you know, it's just a Docker pool, Amazon slash AWS dash step functions dash local. There's a link in our Docker on how to do this. And then it's just a Docker run, you know, expose the ports and away you go. But there's a little bit more. You've got to set up some environmental uh, settings, right, before you get this thing up and humming. Yeah, that's right. So before you run either the container or the jar file, you need to configure a file called aws-step-functions-local-credentials.txt. And you need to input some parameters into this file. Like what? Like what? Well, I didn't read the documentation, and I'm not sure if anyone actually does that. <laughs> well, you should. Well, I found that out the hard way. So the configuration Precisely. file asks for, you know, AWS account, ID, region, access key, secret access key, endpoints for services like Lambda, DynamoDB, and other. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hang on, why do I need to do this if it's local? Exactly. So why, why would you? Well, the documentation will tell you this. But by default, Step Functions Local allows you to use fake account credentials, and the region is set internally to US East and you know, North Virginia. Hang on, fake account credentials? Fake account credentials. But if you want Step Functions Local to interact with systems inside the AWS cloud, that's when you need to configure credentials and region. Okay, right, so just to be clear, so the fake account credentials are just to get 
connectivity into the local running instance of it, which doesn't actually look up anything in IAM. But if you do want to connect to the real AWS endpoints for other services, that's why you need those additional credentials. Correct, yeah. Right, cool. We just saved you in the actual documentation. Mm. How cool is that? Where were you last week, Pete, when I was uh, having a bit of a play? <laughs> so look, to access, access step functions locally, it's available on port 8083 by default. Um, obviously, you can change the port you expose your container on if you're running containers. To access step functions locally, just use the endpoint parameter, endpoint URL parameter. Mm -hmm. So, for example, using the AWS command line, you you probably do something like AWS step functions hyphen hyphen endpoint hyphen URL HTTP localhost and the port. So that's 8083. Yep. Um, and if you're running step functions local, you may actually want to complement that with Lambda Local or DynamoDB and wrap this all together with SAM. Um, you know, but I think probably, Pete, this may be a story for another day. I reckon, but I, can, I see an opportunity for some somebody who wants to take up the challenge, uh, you know, put it in the GitHub, claiming that Shane and Pete suggested this. But I think someone should put together a whole little package where you can, uh, you know, have a virtual bit of AWS cloud in a Docker container that has all these all in one. Wouldn't that be fun? Might be a bit of homework for you there, Pete. Mm. Or if, if I had a bit more time in my day. Perhaps. You've got plenty of time. Uh, I wish, I wish. Well, look, the, uh, the second thing to bring up to our listeners with Step Function is that it now supports tag-based permissions, which means that it allows you to control access to your state machines based on tags using IIM policies, uh, which also helps you to drive automation. And uh, it's probably you know, in line with my thinking. You know, I always like to have uh, greater security. And remember, um, you know, at Amazon, you know, job zero, or everyone's job really should be security. So uh, we take it very seriously, and you should too. So tags are very useful here, and um, uh, tags per you know AWS services uh, are simple labels that consist of you know a, a, you know a key value pairs if you like uh, that make it easier to manage, search, filter, look up resources, um, and it's just another way of documenting so metadata really about the infrastructure or things that you've spun up. So for example, you can tag AWS step function uh, state machines based upon maybe your business unit or um, allow access to those state machines to a member of a particular business that you happen to be belong to. Yeah, so so mm -hmm. a bit of like an environment variable. So totally. this is my production state machine, this is my development state machine, yeah. and maybe- Version I'm, XYZ, yeah. you know, build, you know, you know, XYZ as well. So all these really cool things are very useful. Um, and the uh, corresponding IAM permissions are, are also automatically applied to these things. Very it's pretty cool. cool. So for, for instance, what you could do is you could restrict access to uh, all your step function resources that include a tag with a certain environment variable uh, called production. Right, so you might want to give your folks, uh, your devs, access to just a dev environment. Um, and for prod consumption and usage, um, it's a no-no. So you can do this uh, under the console uh, when you actually edit it and uh, uh, be able to you know, add additional tags. And uh, for those of you who've used tags for EC2, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, give it a, give it a, a key name. Uh, and the actual value, and uh, you know, many values are also, also optional. And in fact, some people uh, highly recommend this. By the way, another best practice uh, is to uh, put together maybe a wiki for your organization as to uh, your tagging conventions. Really, really useful because uh, you can hide lots of useful things, and don't forget when you put a value against a certain key. Don't forget, you can always concatenate uh, additional metadata yourself for other systems. So yeah. for your pipelines, for your automation, uh, for any sort of tools that run periodically, um, tags are really your friend. Yeah, and we actually have a, speaking of tags, we have a article online about tagging strategies, you know, whether or not you're trying to target billing or automation. 
put that into your favorite search, en search engine and it's probably gonna help you out a lot. You know, suggested tags that you should probably add to your um, resources that you instantiate. Yeah, and actually speaking of building, I mean, you, you can actually tag your AWS resources uh, more broadly and they, those tags will actually appear in your programmatic bill. Very so good. Very, very much uh, worth exploring if you haven't applied it. As you can see, very dear to my heart, Shane. Now, speaking of, uh, of uh, you know, fronting your Lambda functions with step functions, both locally or inside AWS, uh, and you, you mentioned, you touched upon something earlier around putting a load balancer in front of your mm. Lambda functions, perhaps. Um, so what is the latest announcement around the um, advanced request routing functionality that we've got? Okay, so advanced request routing. So for the devs out there, you may have heard of ARR being uh, mentioned as an acronym in the past. Can you say it faster? ARR. <laughs> ARR, let's go faster. <laughs> Okay, tongue so twister. it is a bit of a tongue twister here. So look, we often talk about you know, the feature sets of our products continuing to evolve. You know, we'll start with a minimum viable product or maybe a minimal lovable product, and we continue to evolve and tweak it. So in my mind, our application load balancer or ALB has been one of those silent achievers, you know, just slowly doing more and more. So it's a very important service though. Uh, we don't want to break it because it could break a lot of customers, right? It's a really awesome service. You know, mm -hmm. it's that evolution of a load balancer because it's got that layer seven application OSI layer inspection. Yeah. And because, you know, because it can understand more things, you can make more informed decisions. Yeah. And, that and put it outside of your actual app. So it's actually, if you are going to be really geeky about it, it's a bit of an observer pattern implementation, right? It's allowing you to decouple, mm -hmm. you know, to remove that logic that you would embed in your application. Spot on. So... Look, the ALB has been around since 2016. It's part of the Elastic Load Balancer family, you know, complementing the Classic and the Network Load Balancer. When they arrived, they supported content-based routing. So you might be able to do, say, Amazon.com forward slash dogs or Amazon.com forward slash cats, going to different target groups. They yeah. support. So really, it was the URL-based routing, right? And you pick a different target group based upon the cookie chrome, if you like, in the, uh, the URL. Yeah, and what was great about that is you no longer had to use third level or subdomains. So you mm. didn't have to have cats.amazon.com or dogs. So you could have that, you know, flat structure, which the SEO uh, folks A generally like A much more like microservice that. friendly configuration. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else? It also brought support for containers because obviously containers are, you know, ephemeral by nature. Sometimes they can be running on, uh, you know, interesting ports. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really good. And very, very important because that, that management of packet routing and traffic flow um, you know, is the, uh, the east-west kind of a model is very, very important. Hmm. So, Pete, we are happy to announce we're extending the host-based routing feature and giving customers the ability to write rules and hence route traffic based on standard and custom HTTP headers and methods, the query string and the source IP address. Now, really Pete, cool. there may be some people saying to themselves, HTTP what? Can you uh, can we digress here and can you explain what exactly is a HTTP header? So the hypertext transfer protocol, huh? Okay, well, tick, tick, right, you got tick. that first part. All right, right. <laughs> my memory serves me well. Actually, I'm not even looking this up. This is all going off memory. Um, so look, years ago uh, when the internet was being created, um, we had this issue of you know the in, the web servers were really stateless, right? So you had to have a mechanism for for, for logging in and carrying state, and if you had a web farm. 
you know, how if you hit a different backend server, you know, how do you maintain state across those that farm and you used to farm it out into out of proc into a, maybe a database, but also more and more increasingly over the years, the HTTP headers, which are additional payloads being submitted by the browser to your uh, your web server, um, could hold additional information. So things like cookies, things like your Java uh, JSON tokens, uh, or uh, things like you know referrers, because um, you can actually introduce a whole bunch of things in the request headers as well. You can request to receive your responses in a gzip format uh, or other formats in fact so there's a lot of cool stuff you can actually pass up the line into the uh, the web server uh, outside of the actual body of the payload so this is actually all in the header so uh, you can do some cool stuff around you know what gets submitted what gets received um, it also holds the actual virtual host name that you're trying to address mm. if you have multiple web servers it's being like a host header host header and i think exactly. an easy way to see all this stuff is you know using your favorite browser, they often will have an inspector or debug the mode. You'll be able mode, to see yes. the request and response headers that have been exchanged between your browser and the corresponding web server receiving yeah. the request. Yes. It's like geek alert, get ready for a lot of gum, for a lot of noise uh, in those things because there's a lot of stuff being passed up and down the line. But uh, what's really interesting about this is that we now give you the mechanisms, the ability to create rules uh, that can actually control the behavior of the routing. So you can actually now pass your traffic to a different destination. So the mm -hmm. example of Amazon.com slash dogs and slash cats, uh, you can actually route that not just based upon the dog or cat uh, URL request, but also on the additional information. So if I'm coming from a mobile device that has a user agent of a certain type or a browser type, uh, I can actually route to completely different destination or different service endpoints uh, for the dogs and cats, depending on some additional rules. Yep, and look, it actually even gets better than that. So not only are we giving you the ability to make intelligent routing decisions based on these additional attributes, but we're also making the rules and conditions more powerful. So now rules can have multiple conditions, so not just based on a HTTP yeah. user agent. So they can be ended and or together. So, you know, that's really powerful. So you can combine them together. Yes, and look, you know, over the years, uh, you know, having lived in this space for way too long, um, you may have already had on-premises uh, routers that actually handle HTTP and they do deep packet inspection of the headers and route to different destinations as well or behave in certain ways. So uh, now we're actually taking a lot of that complexity and putting it into the ALB and giving it the full control over how those requests can be ended and ordered. So again, applying some additional programmer logic uh, into how things can be yeah. uh, monitored and controlled and uh, routed. Yeah, and like, you know, if I rewind a few years when I was doing this in the coalface, many of the features we're adding today, you know, you typically in the past implement the logic layer. So if you're using like C Sharp or IIS, you might, you know, implement this in the web config file or perhaps in HT access with a rewrite rule for your, you know, your Apache-based systems. Mm -hmm. yep. um, what is cool about this is, you know, you can use this new feature to simplify your application architecture. So, you know, eliminating, as you mentioned, like a, a proxy fleet or something sitting in front for routing. Totally. And you can block or take That's action. That's the other one. Blocking is really answer. useful. Yeah. 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 So it never actually propagates any further than the actual ALB. Yeah. So, so what are some of the other use cases, Shane? I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch. There Let is, just, yeah. Want, so want, like, want to go through a couple? You might be able to, you know, potentially separate bot and caller traffic from, yep. you know, human traffic. So you might have some known HTTP user agents. You want to mm. send them elsewhere. Um, you might be able to assign, you know, specific customers or groups of customers to different target groups, you know, maybe based on a HTTP header cookie bit of information. Um, you may be able to route traffic to microservice handlers. So, you know, you could send your, your HTTP gets one way, your puts another way. You could do, because now you know the source IP address, you could do, you know, I guess some pretty rudimentary 
IP restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, Very important if you if you got a particular offender that's trying to scrape your website, perhaps. Yeah, um, and maybe you know maybe you've got those old legacy users. You know, it's time to upgrade from IE six. You know, let's send them here. That happens a lot. If you happen to be in the enterprise and uh, you might be running on a very old version of an operating system, uh, you may be seeing that error more often than not. Yeah. So look, the rules engine is really powerful. And as I just mentioned, you know, you can group them together with logic operators such as, you know, ifs, ands, ors, and then do this. Um, and we give you ARNs, right? So you can, you can programmatically interface and uh, control those things. That's what's really cool about this. So each rule gets a unique ARN or Amazon resource name. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can reference it in a programmatic way. So what can you do? So you can also create, modify, and examine, and delete rules using the ALB API and CLI. But I must say, at the moment, at present, there is no CloudFormation support, but this will be ready pretty soon. And I think also, Pete, just as the saying goes, if you're not keeping score well, you know, it's just practice. You can look at the rule evaluations and HTTP fixed response count in CloudWatch, which is, you know, I think a great way to give you an idea of actually how effective your rules are and how your traffic is routing through. And look, it's very important. I mean, if you had rules, that's one thing, but if you couldn't actually see what's going on, it'd be pretty much a black box. You wouldn't know what's being evaluated, whether they're actually being implemented or used. Uh, yeah, so very nice integration into um, CloudWatch. So Shane, is there any limits we need to be aware of here? There is, okay. So each ALB can have up to 100 rules. And look, considering you can and or if and you know have multiple conditions, 100 rules is a lot. Um, it's a fair I bit. I can't really see any to reason. To be honest, there really that many. Well, right. it probably becomes an overhead of managing. Yes, but look, again, over time, and again, I've seen this with uh, on-premises equipment, when they did actually implement uh, um, rules in the routers themselves, they did actually get out of control. So you don't want to have too many. You want to be very pragmatic about what you can and can't do. Now, what about rule evaluations and rule matching, Shane? Is there anything else uh, we need to tell our listeners about, uh, you know, priorities and so forth? Yeah, okay. So the rules are powered by string matching. So test well and double-check your rules are functioning, you know, as, in, as, as expected. The match rule priority and actions executed fields in the ALB access logs can help when debugging and testing. And I think finally, Pete, AIR is available in all AWS regions where ALBs are available. Hooray, go check them out now. Absolutely. Uh, I'll be playing with those shortly. So Shane, you know, we often talk about eating one's own dog food, right? And uh, the best way to do that is to uh, play the platform uh, and walk in customer's shoes. So question for you, Shane. Uh, do you ever receive notifications about EC2 pending reboots from, from us? Yeah, look, not that often, but from time to time I do. And I think given the scale that we've run at, there are cases when we need to schedule events for EC2 instances. You know, this could be, example, maybe the underlying host needs a reboot. It could be a stop or start event. It could be maybe even a retirement because, you know, we need to lifecycle out our equipment. Totally. Um, they don't occur frequently, but yes, they do happen, Pete. So how? So when you get those emails, what do you do? What do I do? Yeah. Well, look, for me at the moment, most of the time, I'm just uh, you know having a bit of a play, so it's not nothing too serious. Um, so you're not running production platform of cats and dogs and. <laughs> funnily enough, I'm not. I'm actually quite busy these days. Who would believe that? Yes. But look, those emails, you know, they generally provide you know details about the event including a start and an end date. And depending on the event, sometimes you're actually able to take um, action yourself, you know, by bringing this forward and rebooting at a time, you know, that may be more convenient for yourself if you do that yourself. Mm-hmm. But that can be tricky though, because uh, you don't want to be at work all the time, right? So sometimes you may actually want to schedule. You, you may, yeah. So, so I'm pleased to say that we have a, 
a new feature, uh, which is, gives you the ability to actually pick up the time for when you want to schedule and uh, a schedule event to take place. So in this case for EC2, um, when you actually perhaps want to do that reboot, uh, or you yep. have off-the-shelf applications, you know, like databases. Often, you know, you need to be very careful when you turn them on and off because you don't want to impact the users or the production environment. Uh, if you're auto scaling, it's probably less of an issue for most people for uh, like a front web fleet which scales in and out. Um, but certainly for those more more pets. Right? Yeah. And look, customers do still have those pets mm-hmm. out there. You know, you just mentioned, um, you know, database engines. There are many consumer off-the-shelf pieces of software that may be architected in that way. Or, you know, there may be, I guess, you may be held captive by licensing. It may not be financially feasible to, say, have that second or third instance, you know, providing a functionality, you know, for those moments where on the rarity where there may be a service disruption. Correct. Yeah, and you don't want to go through it. So, so I'm pleased to say that we now give you the ability. Um, so after you get notified, you can hop into the, uh, the console um, and schedule when you want to actually undertake a, an event uh, and how to deal with it. You can do it programmatically as well through the API and the CLI. Uh, so this is, what this really means is that this feature allows you to uh, uh, schedule perhaps reboots or um, whenever you get that notification, by the way, you, know, you can decide whether you want to stop an instance, maybe it's scheduled for retirement or reboot. Uh, it's entirely up to you. So through the, through the console, uh, you can select what action you'd like to take or potentially through uh, through code and programmatically you can use the CLI and you know use the describe instance status and find out which instance actually has an event against it um, and then actually schedule an activity uh, such as a reboot mm. and by the way this goes back to making sure that uh, you know there's a date usually by when something needs to happen you can perhaps schedule it hopefully uh, ahead of that time yeah and so look I guess often emails can get lost in the swarm of daily life I know for me at the best of times my inbox can be overwhelming and I get 300 megs of email a month, so easily lost. Yeah. So look, you know, if I was running a business and what I'd probably advise my customers here, Pete, is I think monitoring is the cornerstone of any well-run IT organization. Absolutely. So, you know, you could be Both using... DevOps and pre-DevOps, in fact. Absolutely. Look, yeah. if, you're, if you don't know what's happening in your environment, uh-huh. how can you really take, you know, action and manage it accordingly? Correct. So... You know, most enterprise, I'll say most, I haven't found come across any, any monitoring platform that doesn't have the ability to execute scripts. So if it was me, I would probably write a PowerShell script because obviously this is available via um, AWS tools for Windows PowerShell or AWS CLI. I would write a script. I might execute it on a regular basis, maybe perhaps daily. My script would probably then iterate through all of my instances dynamically, figuring out what I've got executing a described instance and look for these status of events. You know, and if an event is found on either maybe publish a message to an SNS topic or alert via the said monitoring platform. I guess ultimately here, we want to get rid of surprises and you know, this is a way to catch these events. So Pete, we've now detected these events. Mm-hmm. How do we act on them? Well, simply via, again, call another API or the CLI and actually uh, request that you actually would like us to take the reboot action for you. Right, so uh, in your pipelines that you were just talking about, where you're actually monitoring actively um, your fleet, say EC2 in this case, uh, you could then actually say, I would like to schedule a certain reboot uh, event to occur at a certain time and not before a particular time. So how that sound? Pretty, pretty cool uh, new, new feature? That's uh, pretty cool, yeah. So look, you can use both the AWS CLI and AWS tools for Windows PowerShell. And I think you'd probably want to do that if you have a complex structure. You know, some customers may have hundreds of AWS accounts and you need to probably do this in a more programmatic way rather than logging into the console and in you know, each and every mm-hmm. account. Yeah. Um, 
So if you are using... Yeah, so any, any, any tips, ninja tips, things to consider, be aware of? Because uh, while we give you this, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, um, then also knowing what you could, uh, you know, cause yourself uh, accidentally. Uh, what are some of the other things you should be aware of if you are going to be uh, using this new feature? There are a few things to take note of here. So my ninja tips here, Pete, are only reboot events with an event deadline can be rescheduled. So the event can be rescheduled up to the event deadline date and the event deadline column in the console and not before date line in the CLI or Windows PowerShell indicates the event if it has a deadline or not. Yeah, so in other words, what, pay close attention to when the events actually need yeah, to yeah, happen, yeah. right? So if you're going to reschedule something, it must be done 60 minutes prior to the event deadline. Mm -hmm. Only reboot events that have not yet started can be rescheduled, which makes sense here. Mm -hmm. And um, if you reschedule multiple events using the console, the event deadline date is determined by the event with the earliest event deadline date. So that was the, the, the first one in line. Correct. In the timeline, got it. So what about if you've got an instance that's going to be rebooted mm -hmm. that is using instance store? These kind of, these pose a few- I would say be very careful. I would say <laughs> be very careful as well. And these pose a unique challenge. So if you want to maintain normal operation here during a scheduled maintenance window, what you can do is launch a replacement instance from, I guess, your most recent Amy, or maybe take a new one. Mm -hmm. Migrate all the data necessarily necessary to a replacement instance before that window, and then terminate the original instance yourself. If it was me, I'd want to have full control of this. Totally. And Unless do this you, yeah, and test, test, test. If you are going to, yeah. we have some customers who do some really clever stuff. Uh, on those ephemeral um, volumes of disk. Yep. Uh, and uh, they do some really, really clever things yep. like running uh, BRFS and replicating volumes and journaling file systems between other instances. Um, you know, but I also have a situation where customers did not know they were even running or went aware they were actually using an ephemeral instance. And when they basically stopped and started it, they lost everything. And mm -hmm. uh, I have one customer, so don't be that, that customer who had 15 databases, which they hadn't backed up. On an instance store. On an instance store. And we don't have backups of those. Ouch. So bye-bye. Yeah, and look, you know, there are valid reasons why you'd want to do that. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some database architectures may use a share nothing architecture. And as you just mentioned, you know, replicating between instances. But yeah. look, hopefully, you know, your instances are using EBS back storage, which I guess due to the decoupled nature makes this process, you know, just a little bit easier. Yeah, but look, tempdbs are a great candidate for uh, sitting on an ephemeral volume. I mean, that's something that you uh, don't really need. You don't really it's, care because it'll be right. recreated. <laughs> Blow it away, right? And they can get quite big, mind you. Yeah. Right? So maybe, those... maybe not your statement of record. Probably unless not. it's not being unless it's being replicated. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right, Shane. So. Um, just a quick one to close out the show. Uh, at AWS, we want to put machine learning in the hands of every developer, and we've been trying to democratize this technology for quite a while. And uh, SageMaker is a great example of uh, us helping, uh, you know, uh, take machine learning to almost everyone's hands, including my kids, by the way, who had to play with it uh, a few weeks back. So, wow, yeah. Go your <laughs> kind kids. of unusual. <laughs> um, so, as you guys know, some time ago we launched uh, EC2 Deep Learning Amy's, which provide machine um, learning uh, practitioners and researchers with basically all of the bits and pieces, all the frameworks, all the runtimes, uh, all the configurations set up uh, with all the tools to help you accelerate deep learning in the cloud at any particular scale. So that was really cool, uh, really well received, but um, as, as always, that's not enough. Uh, so 
We know how fast this technology is actually moving, Shane. How fast is it actually moving, Pete? Tell really me. fast. Uh, you know the whole thing about internet time? I think we're truly living in that. And I, I've been actually joking lately. We're living in AWS time, which I think is a little bit faster, but perhaps uh, I'm a little <laughs> bit biased <laughs> with uh, 300 megs of email coming into my inbox every month. Uh, yeah, it's, Every uh, month it's, or every day? Every month. Oh, well, actually, it feels like every day, but yeah, did the math. It's still a lot. Um, so what we've done is um, I listened to our customers, Shane, and they told us that they actually been using EKS and ECS, so our container services. Uh, and more and more of uh, our customers have started to run things like MXNet and TensorFlow workloads inside containers, which is really, really cool because that means you can rapidly speed something up within a couple of seconds uh, as opposed to having a dedicated, uh, you know, uh, Amy running a, a deep uh, deep learning sort of framework. So you, get, you can get the same benefits, but get access to it faster. And some tasks might require to be only running for you know a couple of minutes. So you know, the overhead of spinning up an entire instance may not be there. Uh, so why not use containers yeah. to actually help you launch uh, you know, deep learning containers inside of Docker? Yeah, look, it's a sunk cost for many customers. We'll have that existing container orchestration you know, platforms out there. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really useful, right? So um, so these, these deep, um, deep learning containers um, basically help us to distribute you know, ML workloads more effectively across those clusters. So you are actually leveraging, if you have a cluster that's potentially underutilized, why not actually use those spare CPU cycles to train something, right? And get that scalability really, really quickly. Um, and just to give you a heads up, uh, there are two images, uh, so container images, with uh, lots of variation in each one. So there's... Um, one for TensorFlow and the other one for MXNet. And we plan to uh, release a whole bunch of other frameworks to go with it. Uh, so you can actually go and grab it out of the uh, Elastic Container Registry, uh, ECR, and these are actually free. So if you look at the ESI, you will see that there are multiple containers available with different names, with different parameters that are configured inside those containers. So things like uh, whether it's the framework of TensorFlow or MXNet, uh, what mode, so whether you're training or inferencing, because again, you use, um, and the same frameworks that you run uh, the inference of after you've trained something. Uh, by the way, and you can train these on the same nodes, which is another benefit. Uh, the environment, now, whether you're depending on the actual CPU that's underlying on that instance, or you need a GPU, so yeah. there's a variation so in the like actual. So it'd be like a P series. Correct. ECS, yeah. ECS Versus an M series, yeah. right? Uh, also, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Python uh, framework, the programming that you're using, whether it's 2.7 or 3.6, which seems to be the case these days. Um, and also, whether we also support distributed training. Uh, so we actually support something called um, Horovod framework. And those of you who don't know what Horovod is, it's actually um, uh, part of the Linux foundation for deep learning. Uh, and the idea is that uh, the Horovod framework actually supports basically um, uh, distributed machine learning much, much better and much, much easier. What they do is they use MPI uh, for intercommunication between, uh, so message passing interface, um, messaging around different multiple containers in this case, which means you can actually rapidly accelerate your machine learning uh, and training of, of your uh, solutions uh, because you can actually leverage the entire fleet of your ECS containers. You can still do that, by the way, on EC2 instances if you want. However, we actually support that out of the box inside those actual containers. and. Uh, uh, fundamentally, it's a, it's a very nice mechanism of actually getting access to uh, those containers. So all you have to do is uh, you know, perform a Docker pool um, out of ECR. Make sure you're obviously logged in. <laughs> if you're not, yeah, it's going to be problematic. That's a gotcha probably for ECR. <laughs> just to yes. be aware, you, know, just you need credentials. And look, once you've downloaded the image, you just simply uh, create a task definition and you're uh, up and running. Yeah, push that to your uh, ECS EKS cluster. 
Yeah, so basically, um, it's a really nice path if you really want to rapidly leverage existing compute infrastructure that may be sitting idle. Um, and yeah, and uh, look, if you want to know more, just uh, search AWS Deep Learning Container ECS or EKS in your favorite search engine and uh, uh, go flick for doco to better understand uh, what you need to do. And it really isn't that much. Good one. All right, Pete, it is time to close the show. We never have enough time, do we, Shane? We never do. So look, listeners, we'll be back on the airwaves in the coming weeks, so stay tuned for episode 44. It's almost approaching that magic 50 mark. Yes, indeed. So, uh, you know, what have we talked about today? And we talked about step functions. Yeah, we do. So two really cool announcements in this space are, you know, step functions local. So you can develop and test applications using step functions running outside of the AWS cloud environment, either via a jar or a Docker container. Which is great if you're flying in a plane somewhere and, you know. I often get a lot of my best work actually done <laughs> sitting on airplanes. Um Step Functions now also supports tag-based permissions, so which allows you to control access to your state machines based on tags using iron policies, or you know you can leverage these tags for automation. Yeah, and look, we then pivoted into uh, the application load balancers and uh, how they now support advanced, uh, you know, request routing, giving uh, giving you the ability to actually write rules and control traffic flow. Uh, basically based upon standard and custom HTTP header extension and methods, query strings, uh, source IP addresses, uh, to be able to decouple your applications into a much more you know, distributed microservices, uh, modern application format. Mm, pretty powerful stuff there. On the EC2 front, EC2 continues to round out its feature set with customers now having the ability to manage scheduled events and when they'll be implemented, you know, giving you, I guess, more flexibility when managing your EC2 instances. And lastly, Pete, you introduced us to the AWS Deep Learning Containers, which is a Docker container, which makes it simple and straightforward to deploy TensorFlow and Apache MXNet to existing container orchestration platforms, such as ECS and EKS. Indeed. And look, guys, as always, um, thanks for tuning in. Um, you know, To all of you, we'd love to get your feedback. And uh, do let us know. I know Shane and I have received lots of in-person feedback. But don't forget, uh, you can also send us an email to awstechchat, one word, at amazon.com. Uh, and we'd love to hear feedback and suggestions for future shows. Um, until next time, keep on building, guys. Bye for now. Ciao. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>